And I, and I would hope that since we're both members of this group, uh, of these groups that certainly see no benefit in appeasing Nazis, that we can have a conversation that doesn't presume that where we're coming from is because of some natural sympathy with these groups, as opposed to genuinely trying to strategize about how to, how to fix this problem that we very much agree on, which is that America is being increasingly radicalized in these no, extremist I, I just, like, ways. I feel like I've stated my position repeatedly and then I don't, I don't quite know how to react other than like to respond other than like, no, I really believe what I believe. Like, I really think like that, that, that stigmatization, that pariah, dumb, that, that, uh, that physical confrontation that, you know, I think people think that they're too cool for anti-fascism. People think anti-fascism is lame. People think that, uh, you know, it's, it's gauche. It's not enough. Yes, of course, I believe that, like, we should have Medicare for all, that we should have social, like, safety net policies, that we shouldn't, like, leave people to be deprived alone, like, uh, to feel, like, these senses of loss and, uh, uh, like, you know, the, 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 the elements of vulnerability to radicalization are, like, very common human emotions is, is feeling lost is feeling lonely is feeling uh purposeless and like you know everything we can do to mitigate those feelings in such large masses of the population like that's great uh i think there are many constructive things you can do to fight nazism that don't involve like you know brass knuckling up and and like just flattening the nose of a proud boy but like i think you have to be willing to brass knuckle up and 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 flatten the nose of a proud boy too like there there is no space for coalitional politics with these people to my mind so i wanted to talk about something that happened uh the other day that i'm sure anyone who's following the podcast or listening to me because they know us on twitter is probably already aware of which is that the bad faith podcast with brianna joy gray um they had talia lavin on the program, who I guess went undercover uh, in far-right dating websites and did like a huge investigative story on it and wrote a book about the experience. And I haven't read the book. And I don't want to talk too much about that interview directly, except just to say I'm, I'm normally I'm on Twitter like all the time. I'm, you know, I'm very much clued in to left-wing media spaces and and right-wing media spaces as well um i it's it's something that i feel like i track and monitor a lot um but even so i i don't think i was really ready for the ways in which this story was was frankly just kind of triggering to me in the way that it played out um and i guess i should say as a warning to viewers um you know i'm i'm trying deliberately to speak in a way that's not planned um but i know that i do want to touch on uh abuse emotional abuse um and maybe draw on some things from my own life although not too directly uh in part because i don't know if that's something that i'm even able to do uh you know that's what, what i can tell you is that when we began doing the superstructure project, it was coming at, at a time of my life 
when I had just gotten out of a couple of really very toxic uh, interpersonal situations, both at, at work and at home. Um, and I was not ready uh, to, to address that, that stuff directly. Um, and so exploring analogy as a way to talk about political economy and talk about my own, you know, struggles with, with zero-sum framing, right? With, with being in spaces where I felt like my existence was uh, coming as a cost to a group that I had to make up for by making myself smaller uh, and in a way that was, you know, that, that had no end. Um, and, you know, especially speaking to domestic contexts, I think that this news cycle with this interview of Talia where she was basically interrogated in a way that uh, Brianna like fixated on her anti-fascism and specifically in a way that was trying to pose it against de-radicalization um, and I, you know I think that de-radicalization is is really important um, but I don't think that it's something that is anybody's personal responsibility uh, and the reason why I don't think it's anyone's personal responsibility is because I I kind of had to learn the hard way that it was not my responsibility to uh, to single-handedly fix dynamics that were hurting me, that it was okay to leave them. And that feeling, uh, you know, I'm sure anybody who's dealt with, you know, any kind of mental or emotional abuse, you you feel like there's there's trauma bonding that happens because you feel like if you're not there, then the whole house will come down and you sort of get brainwashed into thinking that it works that way with the other person too and so you you enter into this relationship with a feeling of debt and a feeling like the other person is losing something you know expending energy in order to hold you up you know not realizing that you're expending energy to hold them up and the relationship up um, and you know part of that is because you don't feel like you have an ability to leave that situation uh, you you know you can probably tell this is uh, this is hard for me to um, talk about even though I, uh, I I feel I do feel a need to express myself expressing myself in this podcast has actually been extremely therapeutic for me and I don't want what I'm doing here uh, engaging with something that is difficult for me to do um, to be misconstrued as some sort of attitude that I think that people should you know take the difficult path and face their traumas or in some kind of a combative way or something um, I'm really not trying to just like approach this like a gladiator um i i actually have 
uh, what I think are helpful ways of reframing what was difficult for me that I really want to share with you. So podcasting is often derided for being parasocial, quote unquote, um, which I think is such a creepy word. But what that means, you know, it refers to the supposedly one-sided nature of podcasting. One-sided because I don't know who's listening to this. Um, And people might be listening to this. There might be some people who listen to this a bunch of times uh, or listen to a bunch of our episodes and know me much better than I know them personally. But I still feel like I'm communicating with people just in a different way. And one of the things that I like about doing it this way, the fact that it's just me talking means that in working through this difficult thing, my rhythm and cadence and the way in which I'm breathing is not thrown into a situation of having to find a compromise with a hostile interlocutor. You know, we live in a society where it's it's not always immediately okay if you leave a situation and and people have to have to make a really hard choice to be okay with leaving and whatever happens to the other person, you know, after a certain point, that's not that's not your concern um, for, for your own self-preservation. Um, and, you know, that's, that's something that I have a little experience with. And I heard a lot of those kinds of logics and, and tactics to keep, both to keep Talia in that conversation um, where she, she would try to change the topic and there would always be some reason why you know maybe she misinterpreted what was going on in the conversation um, and actually it wasn't combative it, that's just in Talia's head that it's combative right so you know gaslighting at that level um, but then also you know kind of the the substance of what Brianna was saying more generally and what she was arguing more generally was that a conversation between anti-fascists and people who at minimum don't agree with anti-fascism who don't agree with militant anti-fascism that engaging in a dialogue with those people uh, is is a perpetual responsibility is like part of living in a society basically is that you know we're all under the same proverbial roof as the far right, um, and you can probably see where I'm going with this, right? I, I feel like it's very interesting to me that this idea of a free speech commons, right? Uh, you know, that's, that's sort of the absence of institutions where you're just out in the world and you're talking to people. Um, you know, we, we've talked a lot on the on the show about how you know, that, that goes back to kind of enlightenment ideas of, of a state of nature and this kind of thing. But I think in this scenario, it becomes really clear how that functions the same way as uh, an abusive household or an abusive family context that you're not allowed to leave. Um, in, in this case, instead of the family needs to get along, right? It's, uh, you have to coalition build. Um, and 
if it's hard for you to coalition build, that's something that you need to work out because the coalition building is going to be hard for everyone until you figure out how to be okay with talking to these fascists. And, you know, I just want to say that that's bullshit uh, completely. And it, it was really, really triggering to me um, if, you know, just, just to be blunt, it, it reminded me of, of conversations of, of being yelled at for hours and hours straight, you know, until I'm kind of confused and, and delirious and eventually both sides would, you know, both sides, eventually the other side would run out of energy and there would be some kind of a fake reconciliation or a honeymoon sort of period and then it would, it would happen again. Um, and the understanding was that this was us fighting for the relationship, right? You have to fight. Uh, and we were in there in that fight together. Um, and, you know, I, I eventually had to come to an understanding. You know, I had to face that it was sometimes easier for me to imagine dying than it was to imagine uh, getting myself out of that situation. Um, and, and I didn't die. Um, I didn't die. I was never suicidal um, in, in you know, any kind of a serious way. It was always more of a hypothetical kind of, you know, I, I really can more easily imagine being dead than this relationship ending because I don't have the permission to end it. Um, because we're under the same roof, she's done so much for me. Uh, and if I leave, then, then she's going to be left holding the bag or something like that. And, you know, that, that kind of blackmail was essentially what, what Brianna was doing. But, you know, I don't just want to make this about Brianna because I, I actually, I think that this is something that's been a long time in the making. Um, as long as, you know, there has been this kind of explosion of uh, left-wing media that has, you know, sort of a wide audience or something, right? It's like what has been the most dominant sort of framing for this alternative left media, right? Uh, this idea of the dirtbag left. And, you know, the point of them calling themselves the dirtbag left is not because they think that they're like shittier than other people, right? Um, it's a way, from their point of view, it's a way of saying, well, yes, I am shitty when they're called out. And you know what? So is everyone. We're all shitty. But isn't there more important stuff to be concerned about than, than just whether I'm mean online, right? So there's this kind of deflection uh, from how they are treating people emotionally um, and you know verbally and just everything online right is is belittled as, as not mattering right it's, it's not on the ground so it's not real organizing you know and we'll it'll set aside uh, talking about real organizing because anyone who's ever um, done real organizing for a long time I think can speak to how, the emotional and verbal and social dynamics are, you know, no less potent and important to 
how that goes for you. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's this idea of the dirtbag left being sort of embrace of, well, everyone is a dirtbag, right? Um, and that's a way of saying we're all thrown into a problem of hurting each other, right? And that's, and that is kind of the basis of solidarity is this sort of, you know, what is basically trauma bonding. Um, and in a certain way, uh, this, this really comes full circle to what somebody like uh, Liz Brunig says in, in the New York Times and the Atlantic and Washington, you know, I don't even know all the places that she's writing in. Um, but you go through the Liz Brunig catalog as uh, my co-host Natty and our guest uh, Charlotte at Multo Populare on Twitter. A theme that comes up again and again is that uh, we're all sinners, right? Um, and that is the starting point for politics for her. Um, there was one article I remember reading for an episode that we did where she she talks about uh, she uses the phrase thick social bonds and a thick social bond is one in which there is some kind of a shared material stake in the relationship like you're part of a household you know you're you're dependent uh codependent to be a little bit punny um there's dependence that means that you are at the end of the day committed to overlook each other's flaws or something, right? And I think that you see that also in uh, certain discourses from DSA about, you know, be comradely, right? There's there's this idea that we're, we all have a material stake in the revolution or whatever the fuck um, in left-wing politics, which means that we're part of the same tribe, we're part of a family, you know, and because of that you give people the benefit of the doubt um and by benefit of the doubt here i don't just mean you know like i i do think that people deserve the benefit of the doubt but not at an interpersonal level necessarily um i think that institutionally we should give people the benefit of the doubt we shouldn't make institutional judgments about whether somebody is damned um which is why I'm an abolitionist, right? And why we've talked about abolitionism. Because the logic of carcerality is that when people are hurt, that the pain from that, you know, if there's been, you know, abuse or a pattern of abuse or something, that must be summed up as a, a single univocal crime against the state that corresponds with uh, an obligation to be punished, right? An obligation of imprisonment or paying fines or, you know, whatever. Um, and the nature of, of this kind of obligation, right, is that because it's rooted in this modern imagination of sovereignty, right? And sovereignty is, is exception from accountability, right? You know, we're, we're accountable to what you know, the buck stops with prison, right? And it's another way to put it. And so, you know, that's really all that we can do is imprison people. Or we can 
not hold anybody accountable for anything, right? There's no sense of accountability being an, an overlapping and multi-directional thing um, because, you know, there has to be some univocal judgment of where, where the rubber hits the road. And I think that the flip side of carcerality as a form of punishment and, you know, and don't get it twisted, like the, the you know, dirtbag left or whatever, you know, Liz Brunig, like they will back cops um, just a, as a as a principle, you know, uh, they they will hold that option open for some people. And you can get a sense of who those people are uh, when they engage in, you know, moral panics about kink at pride, you know, or conflate trans uh, sex workers showing younger women how to survive on the street the way that they had to learn how to do that, you know, conflate that with pimping and grooming, right? They will cave to, to carcerality. There are people in their minds where that's acceptable. Um, but what that means is that it also kind of perversely becomes the reason for why domestic abuse gets justified, right? Um, because there's a sense of like, well, yes, you know, your husband is mistreating you, right? But is that really worth him going to prison for, right? Um, or is that really worth, you know, canceling somebody, right? We can, we can think about, you know, this is the idea of canceling through this lens too, I think. Um, there's, right, so you, you feel pressured not to hold anybody accountable for anything because if you do, then in a carceral context, right, that means that you're canceling them, you're excommunicating them, you're punishing them, et cetera, et cetera. And but then what happens in the absence of that, right, is that it's a quote-unquote non-institutional form of policing, right? Um, you're policing people who are being mistreated uh, by emotionally gaslighting them about it. You know, these social bonds are thick and, you know, you're hurt, they're hurt. Who's really to say, you know, but you are in, you're in an ongoing social relationship with them that is not worth, you know, ending, basically. And in the absence of institutional mediation that's not carceral, right, um, in the absence of jobs, of counseling, of social infrastructures that that can allow you to leave a situation without directly equating you leaving that situation with leaving some troubled person to, to wallow in despair or not survive or something like that. Um, because that, that really is kind of the emotional blackmail here. And it's funny, like a, one of the things that you always hear in kind of the basic, you know, MMT 1.0, you know, whatever, uh, which at this point probably sounds really weird. Why am I bringing up MMT, modern monetary theory? Um, but they'll say that the government is not a household, right? And, you know, we've kind of taken that as actually a pretty, uh, 
a pretty sharp critique of households <laughs> um, because what happens in a household right in a household everyone is a taxpayer in a certain way you know in, in an emotional economy but also in you know a, there's a breadwinner right um, and everybody is pooling their finite funds right and and so this creates a way in which people's inclusion uh, people having space to to like live um, emotionally have space to not be abused that has to be paid for by somebody um, and you can look at the history of you know taxpayer uh, the idea of the taxpayer right um, as this kind of coded language for uh, you know white uh, nuclear families who imagine that they are the breadwinners of society basically um, who because their taxes are paying for for welfare you know for welfare queens or what you know whatever the the you know racist dog whistle is right um, because of that there is a resentment of difference that gets built in because difference costs money right you can't have of you can't have health care for trans people um, unless someone is paying for that in the zero-sum taxpayer logic world you know and what that means is that if you are you know if you need facial feminization surgery um, like my partner has been <laughs> trying to get uh, that comes you know some some right-winger is imagining that they're paying for that right um, and it's it's a way of naturalizing a feeling of of parasitism that is both false obviously is false because we can always pay for uh, medical capacity to be whatever we want right it's that's an ongoing thing right like the fact that there aren't enough doctors who can perform you know surgery or you know and I don't even know if that's true right but like you know any resource constraint that you could bring up to kind of concern troll about whether the society can can pay for this right that's um, there's not some like fixed stock of you know available health care that, that trans people are using up right um, what you actually have is the ongoing production of what it takes to do healthcare for trans people, right? And in the past, people planned for that to be really low and insufficient. And so today, you know, we deal with the consequences and you take a snapshot of today and it looks like there's not enough medical care out there, so people need to start rationing, right? And maybe if you're in a, you know, if you're in a household setting or you're, you know, you, uh, you take away the agency to change the way that things are done in a larger sense, then you know you can you can start to easily imagine zero sum trade offs. But at the level of society as a whole, that's really not uh, that's not something that's ever on the table. Um, we can always choose to include people tomorrow. You know, it might it might take time to scale up production to the level in which everyone is included in some particular way, but that can be done. Um, and there's this inability to talk about politics in, in a genuinely 
uh, future tense of planning um, because that's the tense in which things aren't zero sum, right? That's the tense in which uh, the existence of people who are different than you are not going to crowd out anything. They don't crowd out your jobs. They don't crowd out, you know, what language is spoken in your neighborhood or something like that. You know, none of these things are, are given by by nature, right? These are, it's a, it's a qualitative kind of quality of life thing that the, that the society as a whole is planning for and accounting for. And, you know, a, a huge part of how they account for things, right, is by performatively refusing to account for them, right, by leaving people unemployed or building prisons, right, on the, on the expectation that they'll be filled with people who were, you know, who, for whom it was planned that they would be in a position where they would be criminalized. So for me, this podcast has been immensely therapeutic as a way of realizing not only that I don't take up space in a social sense, right? Um, also households, you know, that's a socially provisioned Thing. The idea of this austere zero-sum unit that's that's all on its own, right? And therefore, within that unit, it has to be hierarchical in a certain way. Whatever kind of abusive relationships there are, you know, isn't it better to hold on to those rather than rock the boat, right? All of all of these kinds of things, um, they're they're all conditioned by ongoing choices to not have anything there for people besides households right um and this isn't even you know i'm not knocking people having families or people you know living together or something like that um if it sounds like that's something that i'm that i'm just critiquing on its own i think that that you know that might be something that people would read into based on tacit zero-sum assumptions right that if i'm advocating for something that doesn't exist right now your mind goes to, well, what's being displaced in order to pay for that, right? And so another thing that stood out to me that I think is, you know, sort of follows from this about this conversation of de-radicalization is it's a certain way of individualizing a problem that, that honestly I thought that the left was, was better on than clearly they are with this issue. If you look at climate change, um, you know, the, the, whether it's AOC, the Bernie campaign, Sunrise, uh, you know, the, like every institution of the, of the socialist left or the progressive left has really like rightfully and effectively critiqued approaches to climate change and climate rhetoric that try to make it a thing about individually you're too selfish and you're you know the problem is that you're not recycling right or the problem is that you won't change your diet or um on on the really far end of that right if you really want to push those logics as far as they go you know you end up with population control kinds of discourses right people are people are having too many kids the planet can't sustain kids like this right um we all we all live in one planet, right? Where we cohabitate a planet. There's that word, right? You know, cohabitation is 
kind of interesting to me because it uh, it works both in the context of an ecosystem and in the context of a household that I think uh, shows the way in which these are actually sort of the same sphere in the same problematic way, right? I don't actually think that ecosystems or households are like that, but we have an ideology that says that they're these, you know, kind of austere vacuums of free association, uh, you know, quote unquote, free association, right? Except, you know, if you try to leave, they tell you that the problem is only going to get worse and it's your fault, right? So it's not really even free association. But, um, you know, you're all under the same roof. You're all in the same free speech commons or something like that. Uh, and the left really loves the idea of a commons. Um, that's a really hard one to to be critical of. But, you know, you you think back to, you know, Marx's kind of false story about the commons being privatized, right? Common land being privatized and then people who supported themselves or maybe families who supported themselves, right? This imagination of a, um, you know, patriarchal unit, right? That would, you know, presumably have all of these same problems because everybody is, um, you're not allowed to leave, right? Because then that's literally your family is self self subsisting. So how are you going to leave a situation in which you're helping a community self subsist, right? Um, the option to leave, the option to assert boundaries, is compromised from the beginning. You know, you already owe these people your life because if it weren't for them, you wouldn't be able to survive. And so how you know, how dare you jump to the conclusion that you can just leave, right? Um, so this common story is very problematic and, and I think a lot of ways when you think about it. Um, it also just historically, it, it kind of blows my mind about it is that like the reason that that land was a commons is because some fucking like, you know, European king or something declared it was a commons, right? Um, it, which is just to say that the resemblance to a household, which is a, a product of institutional planning right is an institution um the commons quote unquote is an institution too uh it's not the absence of institutions it's not a purely negative space where the rule is free association right um it's it's institutionally planned and it's an institution that's planned to look like uh, this this white European imaginary of a state of nature, <laughs> right? Um, of of self subsistence, um, and it's an imagination that uh, that doesn't have room for for the kinds of institutions that would make it safe to leave, or if it does have room for institutions, say for counseling, for public health services, right? Um, it's on it's through the logic of taxpayers right um and you can kind of see how a conversation about radicalization de-radicalization would go down if it's embedded in in taxpayer money quote unquote right um you haven't actually gotten rid of the problem with the framing of de-radicalization as a cost that we all have to bear right um just by saying oh well instead of you personally go talk to a Nazi, you know, that nice taxpayer there will pay for you uh, 
we'll pay for that Nazi to get treatment so that you don't have to talk to him. But now don't you feel shitty because they're paying for for you because you're not pulling your weight and you're not doing the work to be okay with talking to that Nazi. So that's coming out of their pocket, that Nazi's healthcare, right? Um, you can see how this is, it's built to fail um, and it's, it's built to posit people's safety and mental health as a cost to others at like the most basic level. And what would actually be needed for, for like real de-radicalization? Um, you know, I'm not I'm not the expert on this, uh, but I, I'm sure it would be lots of things, right? Uh, to me, this is kind of similar to asking the question that abolitionists get all the time, which is, what would be the alternative to prisons? And, you know, it's it's kind of uh, it's it's a question that that I think is is embedded within the logic of prisons, right? Because the whole idea of prison is that it's it's the one solution to uh, all of the kind of messy overlapping social obligations that, that happen both in an ongoing way, but also in the context of whatever someone's going to prison for, right? Who's been hurt, you know, who owes what to whom, you know, is not, you can't just isolate these things. Um, and so the idea that, you know, what would what would we have instead of prisons as if it would be one thing, right? That's basically saying, well, what kind of prison would we have instead of prisons? Um, you know, I think it would be a lot of different things. And the reason why it has to be MMT, you know, the, the reason why you need to have an understanding of of space being planned for people, a, a form of social accounting, like accounting for what everybody needs, you need that to be delinked from some imagined like maximum <laughs> number of dollars that you can print or something like that, right? Um, because of course, there are lots of things that we should have instead of prisons. I don't know if all of those things are even just instead of prisons, right? They're also instead of other things, you know? There are a lot of reasons, there are a lot of reasons besides uh, al needing an alternative to prisons why we need more jobs, right? We need an alternative to employment too. We need different kinds of employment. We need more democratic control over what kinds of employment there are. Um, but also we need you know, not to reify or just highlight the specific institution of a job. There are a lot of a lot of people, a lot of circumstances where the specific institutional form of a you know a nine to five job or something where you have you know these these specific tasks that you have to do every day. You know, for you know, and you're graded on your performance and paid accordingly. You know, like all of that kind of thing. Like there there are a lot of ways in which that's not what I mean by by obligation right um, and and by by jobs um, you know uh, I think that you know during COVID staying home you know or checking on people who live alone or you know doing you know whatever just like you know acknowledge that you're you're in a society and you know you do have to be a you know 
at minimum, you have to not be a Nazi, right? Um, that's that's an obligation. You know, it's it's really not that interesting the idea of there being obligations. But what's what's important is that the obligations are mediated abstractly, right? Um, they're not obligation in the sense of being in a household where you have an obligation to to produce something that will keep the family afloat you know um it's it's not obligation in that way um obligation as a as an acknowledgement that the world is maintained by all of us in different ways um and that's that's pretty unavoidable um and in order to deal with that in a way that is humane and doesn't tell people to bottle up you know feelings of being mistreated or doesn't tell people to work harder when they're burnt out you know and is and is sensitive to all of those things and doesn't treat them as trade-offs that we can only sometimes afford at the expense of honest hard-working people um, to get there you need to have a view of social accounting that isn't like a fixed pot of like numbers you know um you need to just be able to say that people have a right to a job people have a right to health care you know however many people we need to train for a capacity for there to be adequate trans health care money can't be an object for that uh and you know it may be that there are you know, limits to caring for everyone in some particular way. But we can't always care for everyone in, in some way, and we can always have a humane and rational, uh, don't like the word rational, <laughs> we can always have a humane conversation about how that happens, and not a conversation in a flat public discourse way, right? We can have a conversation that is is textured and overlapping conversations that are decentralized but nevertheless invoke this shared horizon of of life um, as an invincible center right not a center like a state you know or a particular power center right a center of interdependence that I think is actually suppressed by the idea of nation states by the idea of of families right by the idea of any one institution that is self-subsistent because once you posit total self-subsistence right you need to be in control of your environment completely you know if if you're expecting yourself to be fully self-subsistent you're going to read the fact of interdependence as threatening basically uh and the response symptomatically to that is going to be to shore up that independence right shore up that feeling of self-standing by uh you know disciplining this this outside that's threatening it right um i think that that's actually a really helpful way to think about what are the things we don't like about the nation state as an institutional form uh rather than try to get outside of it, right? Because what happens when you try to get outside of institutions, right? You posit something that looks a lot like a household, um, a lot like a space of burnout and people uh, internalizing their burnout in order to not have it be a problem that 
is on the group's shoulders. And, you know, these are all things that we've talked about so much on on the show and for people who listen, I'm, I'm sure that the last, you know, 10 or 15 minutes have been a lot of repetition. Um, but I hope that through this repetition, you're seeing why this is all of a piece to me um, and why I think that as de-radicalization becomes politicized, you know, de-radicalizing all of these right-wing extremists, how that's never going to happen, really, if the conversation is premised on people individually doing this work at their own expense, right? Um, society should never be posited as something that people make at their own expense, because uh, people don't exist at, at an expense, right? Existence, like life is a gift. It, it's self-justifying. And, you know, I, I think that this is something that I don't want to, you know, I know that I'm going to see this. I'm dreading when I see right-wingers on Fox News talking about how the left wants to use taxpayer money to prosecute their own ideological war, right? And how that's going to be, um, how that's going to be used as an argument in favor of handling that ideological war, you know, offline or whatever, right? Framing it as a war, framing it as something with two sides that both lose something by talking to each other, but it's necessary that they talk to each other because we've reached some kind of an impasse, you know? Um, I don't want to talk to a fascist. Um, <laughs> I don't want to talk to my ex, <laughs> right? Um, and I want to live in a society where that's not like, you know, where that's not my problem, um, directly anyway, you know? Um, it. I owe things to the world um, as a person, right? I, I think I owe the world to not be abusive myself, for starters. Um, it's not a kind of debt that I want to owe one-to-one -to, -one to people because that's, that's why we have institutions in the first place, right? That's why there are therapists. That's why there are jobs so that um, I don't have to switch and learn how to code when I'm 50, right? I can understand that there's and expect that there is macro planning happening that, that I have, you know, hopefully some agency in and a voice in at, at a lot of different kind of levels and registers of democracy. Um, you know, that there's some planning that's that's accounting for if we need coding in the future or something so that, you know, people who've never been trained to do something aren't suddenly told that they're objectively unskilled for the demands of the world right now or something. You know, there's there's all kinds of ways where I want there to be and accounting for all of the institutions that people need in order to assert boundaries in their lives. Um, and I don't want the household to be the central metaphor uh, for how we organize a society and how we have institutions that provide some kind of a respite 
for the household. That was in many ways how the New Deal was framed, right? Um, it's intensely patriarchal kind of, you know, uh, household national project. Then when we got to neoliberalism, there was this the sense of, well, that was fun, but it couldn't last forever, right? Um, because, you know, reality kicked in and we couldn't afford to have a standard of living like that anymore. Um, that's all bullshit. Uh, we could always afford um, to have a, a society that was much more inclusive than the New Deal uh, and much better for so many more people. But in order to do that, you, you need to start from different framing, right? From a framing of inclusion being the inalienable starting point and money being both no object, but, you know, the way that we socially account for the shape of how we're including everyone, rather than only spend this much money on this many people and imagine that everyone outside of that is outside of the economy and outside of planning. They're not outside of planning. The plan is for them to be unemployed. You know, the plan is for them to be in prison. And I hope that this kind of left MMT framework that we're developing can be at the same time that it's been really therapeutic for me to to know and feel my way through really the kind of death drive that's at the at the core of these kind of zero-sum framings and you know scarce emotional economies scarce economy of labor of you know what is going to be the division of labor to get to make the social product, which is somehow decided um, independently of the decision of whether everyone has a place and is able to contribute and all of that. I hope that this conversation was, you know, maybe a, a different emotional register than I've shared with with folks in, in our little community that we've cultivated and that, you know, um, and whatever, uh, whoever overlaps with this community, you know, whoever hears this, however they hear it, um, I am really grateful that you're listening to me, and I really hope that this is something that can be as therapeutic for, for you and generative for thinking about how we facilitate healing in the future because we need to do a lot of that.